0: working our way through the book of Hebrews, we're at the fourth chapter, we'll be finishing that, and we'll be starting the fifth chapter. So we'll begin with chapter 4, verse 14. I ask they hear these words. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what? He suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God for the people of God still speaking today. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. A lot going on there as we continue working through this book of Hebrews. The first thing I want to talk about is this Melchizedek. Because if you're like me, you're like, I don't remember. Who who the heck is that? And the only thing we know about him is from what we're told in God's word in the 14th chapter of Genesis. He's identified specifically as the king of Salem. And he meets Abraham after Abraham has defeated in battle the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and Abraham gives a tithe to him. The symbolism of this means that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. We don't see that happening. Much in God's Word. In our Bibles, this is really the only mention other than Jesus. There were some kings that tried to take over or serve as priests, and let's just say it didn't work out that well for them. I think what it shows us is God intended for the priesthood and the kingship to be separate offices. Jesus like Melchizedek, is both the king and a priest. And the person who wrote Hebrews has used that illustration to help us show us how Jesus is a high priest. And then we get into the fifth chapter. There's there's some confusion going on in verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. First of all, if he prayed, we know Jesus prayed to Father if you would take this cup. But we also know that Christ died on the cross. So did God not answer that prayer? No, God answered that prayer through the resurrection. He is no longer dead. He was saved from death through the resurrection. And what about this? He learned obedience. Isn't Jesus like the most obedient man who ever lived? He learned obedience through what he suffered. We have to think of it as Jesus had this statue and still does. He's the son the second person of the Trinity. We should not expect him to have ever experienced suffering. But Christ, the incarnation, did suffer. And through suffering, God's word tells us, learned obedience. This idea of suffering doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient. That's not what it means. Rather, he learned obedience by actually obeying. We think about it like this. There's a certain quality when you do something than when you just say, I will do that. Experience. You have to go through the process. Anyone can say they're willing to do something, but until they actually perform that action, before they actually do it, they're not really going to understand everything that it entails. couple examples. Think of a student, we just prayed for the graduates, who studies for a test, and they get a good grade. Then there's a student who says they're going to study for the test, but they don't. They're not going to get as good a grade, they get a bad grade. Someone who volunteers their time To help others physically. They help the homeless. They help prepare meals. They help distribute food. Whatever it is. They're going to have a different level of compassion. Working with the people in need. Than a person who simply talks. About helping others. A business owner. Who risks. And starts their own business. Has a different quality of success than anyone who dreams of starting their own business, but never takes that leap. In each of these cases, the people who took the action, they gained something by doing it. They had a different experience than the people who said, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to act. But for whatever reason, they did not. They gained knowledge, compassion, and success through doing the action. Something else that these verses help bring out that it's easy to be obedient when there's no cost associated with it. It's not as difficult as when there is a cost for being obedient. Think about if we do something, it means we lose everything we have. We lose all of who we are. Maybe even our life. That would be a different type of obedience if we were obedient unto death like Jesus Christ. And in heaven, as part of the Godhead, the triune God, Jesus never experienced any lack. There was no reason for him to suffer. No reason for him to fear. He's God. But when he emptied himself, as God's word says, being made in the likeness of men, He accepted all the pain, all all afflictions, and all the neediness that we experience in our humanity. That was when his obedience was perfected. He sacrificed, he suffered everything for us. That's the reason Jesus is a great high priest. He can be our great high priest. He understands our suffering because he has experienced it. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the mediator between God and the people of Israel. He was responsible for offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, and he was the, the person that intercede for them, between them and God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, The completion, if you would say, of the Old Testament priesthood. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but 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 to fulfill them. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Old Covenant, that Old Testament. With the old covenant fulfilled, Christ serves as the high priest, as that mediator, that intercessor between people and God. He's the perfect high priest because he's fully human, fully divine. He understands our struggles because he experienced them. He was able to represent us before God because he is one with God. As our high priest, he's made a full and perfect sacrifice for not only our sins, but the sins of the world. He took that punishment upon himself so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God. Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, where he continually prays for us and intercedes for our behalf, on our behalf. He's our advocate, who always stands up for us and fights for our interests. Jesus serving as the great high priest is a powerful reminder of God's love and God's grace. That should help to give us hope. Hope for the future and assurance that we are never alone. In the rest of our time together, I want to dig in a little deeper into what it specifically means to have Jesus as our high priest. I want to explore what that means to us in our relationship to God and how it can help us to live in ways, our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. But the first thing we have to do is we've got to take our glasses off, and I don't mean our normal glasses but our Western culture glasses. Because every time a person opens up the book, the Word of God, the Bible, the first thing they, they do without knowing it is they're reading this, they're seeing God's Word through their own lens of their culture, how they were raised, how they were brought up. That's, that's how we see it. But the truth is, when these books were first written, they were written to a specific group of people by a person at a specific time. You could say we need to look through this part of the Bible, Hebrews especially, through the lens of those first century Christians that it was originally written to. We knew they were former Jewish people who had come to the Christian faith. They were undergoing persecution and they are wondering, you know, it might be better to go back. I can go to the temple myself. I can make my offering before God. So what we have to do to help us understand this is put on our first century Christian classes. We need to remember, like I said, that this book, the book of Hebrews, was written to former Jewish people who converted to Christianity. The high priest was the holiest position in Judaism. The high priest role extended from Moses' brother Aaron. God placed Aaron as the first high priest and extended into the second temple period. The, the job of the high priest was to oversee all the temple worship. They didn't have to do all of it themselves, but they oversaw it. They were the spiritual leader of the people of God. He was responsible, the high priest, for making and offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, and for interceding for them before God. And once each year, on what was called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the the Holy of Holies, the most sacred temple chamber of the tabernacle or of the temple it contained god's presence there they sprinkled the blood of a bull and of a goat onto the ark of the covenant this is what god's mosaic law the commands he gave this is need to be required and then the high priest would place his hands on a second goat and then the goat would be released He was placing the sins of the people onto that goat. The goat would run off into the wilderness as a sign that the sins of the people had been carried away. But it's important to understand that these sacrifices, these blood sacrifices prescribed by God in his book of Moses, the law that he gave Moses, they had to be done over and over. These blood sacrifices, as an atonement for sin, provided only temporary relief. There's something that was called, or it's called the Talmud Sacrifice. Again, this is from God's command. Twice a day, they had an unblemished lamb, commanded by God. They'd sacrifice this lamb when they had the temple, it would be done in the temple, Two times a day. It took place every day until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD.
1: If you want a visible,
0: physical sign that the Old Testament covenant is no more, look no further than the destruction of the temple because the blood sacrifices that God had commanded in the law of Moses stopped after the temple was destroyed. They don't take place. They have not taken place. They tried to institute them some small secular. They don't take place. The truth from God's word is that they're not needed anymore. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Let's circle back to the first chapter of Hebrews, verse 3. It says, after... Making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. At the right hand of majesty on high is exactly how it says. The blood of Jesus has been poured out once, has atoned for the sins of the world. One time, that's all. That's all that was needed. And Jesus Christ is now sitting at the right hand of God, serving as our great high priest. Okay, now we, we we took off these glasses and we put back on our Western culture glasses. So what's this mean for us here living in Sussex County, Delaware in the year of our Lord, 2023? Verse 4, six, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, the last verse of the fourth chapter. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Um, in the original language, The word that we translate as confidence, some translations use boldly, it means the absence of fear in speaking boldly. Think about that. Here's the throne of God. The seat of God's authority, his power, his honor, and glory. We hold that in reverence. We approach God in reverence. But says we get to approach God and speak confidently and boldly. Think about that. Think about what that means. I mean, how and why would God care for a man, care for a creature like me, who's such a small, tiny, imbecile part of the universe? How could God care for anyone who's cursed, denied, ignored, and rebelled against the sovereign Lord of the universe because of Jesus Christ. Christ is seated in the throne room at the right hand of God. Jesus is seated there as the Savior of the world, as the ideal and perfect, sinless man who sacrificed his life for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is our intercessor, our great high priest before God's throne. And I hope you understand this next part clearly and what it means for us. Because of Jesus Christ, God's throne of judgment has been transformed into a throne of grace. That means it's now open for any person to approach. No matter how bad a person they are, no matter what terrible things they've done in their life, they can approach God. God can and will receive them through Jesus Christ. God's sitting on the throne of grace. We have the right to approach him. So let's do it. Let's approach God through Jesus Christ. God's throne was once a throne of judgment. It's now a throne of grace. It's now open for anyone to approach. In our historic affirmations of faith, Jesus, we we affirm, we say, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. God has placed all judgment into the hands of Jesus Christ. That means we don't have to judge people. Jesus Christ is going to take care of that for us. There was a desert father named Joseph of Panapheus. He said, if you want to find rest, here below and hereafter, in all circumstances say, who am I? And do not judge anyone. When we call on God, when we approach that throne of God, We don't come to be judged, and we don't approach God to judge other people. That verse again, 416, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach God at any time in our lives to receive his mercy and his grace to help us in our times of need. The gospel of Jesus Christ means that as long as there's breath in anyone's life, they're not too far gone. They can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's a message we need to share with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, our co-workers, and yes, Jesus says, that's a message we need to share even with our enemies. We share the gospel through our words and our actions as we follow the command that Jesus gives us to love our neighbors as ourselves. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about love and not judgment. In closing this, remember that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Christ is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he himself was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin.
1: Jesus Christ offers anyone
0: mercy and grace before God. Our great high priest gives us personal access to that throne of grace. So let us draw near to Jesus Christ with confidence, knowing that he will hear us and help us in our time of need. Amen.